0: Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. States across the country are dealing with spikes in hospitalizations and deaths due to COVID-19, and the economy has sputtered to a halt. 22 million Americans have lost their jobs in the last four weeks. Yet President Trump says he wants to reopen the country, with governors and public health experts pushing back. Joining us now to talk about all of that, as well as what Congress is doing to protect the health, safety, and economic futures of people in our region and beyond, is Senator Dick Durbin, Democrat from Illinois. Senator Durbin, welcome back to Reset. It's good to be with you. So first, we saw reports that your grandchild may have been stricken with COVID-19. How are they doing, and how is the rest of your family?
1: Well, they're eight-year-old twins, and we think they both had it. Uh, the mm-hmm. first one, my grandson, so early in the process, they really he didn't get tested for COVID-19, but he was hospitalized. Uh, then our granddaughter came down with it, and the doctor said, I'm 99% sure it's COVID-19, but don't go to the hospital to get tested. It's a dangerous place with a lot of sick people. She made it. She's gone through the fever. She's back on her feet. Everybody's, everybody's fine, thank God.
0: Well, Senator, months ago, Vice President Pence promised Americans would have access to millions of COVID-19 tests. Newly reported figures reveal that nationally, the number of tests is in fact going down in recent weeks. What are your thoughts on where we are with testing?
1: Well, I can tell you this. Uh, We cannot talk about opening up this economy without uh, having available a massive number of testing uh, opportunities and at this point, we don't. We are on the cusp of seeing that emerge. At least that's a report uh, that we may have, but we're not quite there yet. Business leaders have told us, as well as families, for goodness sakes, if we could have a quick test and find out who's positive and who isn't, we can start really finding out where the hot spots are, where the dangers are, and where they are not. You know, that is a critical question that needs to be answered. We're not where we need to be Democrats believe there should be a substantial investment in the production of testing uh, so that there's no question uh, that they have that tool available.
0: What are Democrats asking for right now to try to expand testing and make sure we can actually track who's sick and who's not?
1: Well, the president has to take the lead on this. Under the Defense Production Act, he can step in. He has dramatic authority uh, in this kind of circumstance to not only say to the companies that are doing it, Here's what we'll do to help you. Here's what we want to see in terms of your production. To say to other companies, this is an area we want you to get into as well. When it comes to both the surveillance testing, am I positive, negative, as well as the serology, uh, the blood testing to determine presence of antibodies, putting those things together on a massive scale, even reaching the per capita levels of countries like South Korea, way ahead of us on this, are things that we have to do and do quickly if we're serious about bringing this to a proper close and reopening the economy.
0: Well, governors across the U.S. have been up in arms about inflated prices when trying to secure personal protective equipment and other life-saving equipment like ventilators. And here's what Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker said recently about price gouging. Had the
1: president put in place the Defense Production Act to help us with all of these items, we wouldn't be paying $5 or $6 sometimes for an N95 mask that in a normal circumstance costs $0.85 cents or a dollar. Um, and the same is true for some of the uh, ventilators that we're acquiring. You know, a typical ventilator uh, that's useful in an ICU situation starts, the price starts at around $25,000, maybe up to $35 or $40,000. When we're paying more than that, that's typically because the market has bid up the prices for any available ventilators and let me be clear, there are very few ventilators available in the entire world.
0: Senator, how do you see the situation? Do you agree with the governor?
1: I do. Uh, and let me tell you, there are two elements here. First, of course, the production of a scarce commodity is going to be tougher and more expensive because People who were making 100 and had 100 buyers, now they have 1,000 buyers. And to try to ramp up production from 100 to 200 to 300, it gets tougher and more expensive. I acknowledge that. At the same time, we are clearly dealing with profiteering. There are people who are moving products out of warehouses, whether they're masks or whatever they are, and inflating the prices. And governors like my friend J.B. Pritzker have no choice but to buy them to protect the people in the state of Illinois. We should have had the federal government step into this much, much earlier and make it clear that in no uncertain terms, we are not going to tolerate this kind of profiteering.
0: At this point, is there any congressional action that can be taken to, to try to alleviate this pressure?
1: Well, the laws are on the books. The question is whether the attorney general is going to get a wake-up call and join us in this conversation. It's not enough to do a cameo appearance at a press conference in the White House it's time that a few people are held accountable. Let's let's have some examples of those that have done the most outrageous thing, uh, and, and let's have this uh, Department of Justice get, get into gear. At this point, we haven't seen any evidence of it.
0: Well, you and members of the Illinois delegation were recently on a call with Mayor Lori Lightfoot. What did you discuss?
1: Well, she talked about practical issues she's faced with. I mean, uh, let's be very honest about it. The mayors and the governors uh, are closer to the the ground situation when it comes to families and what they're coping with. And what she was trying to do is to make sure she had the resources, first the the protective equipment uh, to deal with that, watching the hospitals on a daily basis. Uh, Hats off, incidentally, to the Army Corps of Engineers for their work at McCormick Place in Chicago. They've given us a capacity of almost 3,000 beds. I hope we don't need them, but if we do, they're there. Uh, and she talked about that. She talked about the fact that uh, we had a lot of people on food stamps, a SNAP program, who couldn't order groceries to be delivered under the program. So Tammy Duckworth and I, as senators, started addressing that issue to try to make sure that that could happen. So it, it's the practical side of life that mayors and governors are much closer to than those of us in Washington.
0: Well, speaking of the practical side of life, new numbers on unemployment claims are out. Over 5 million more Americans have lost their livelihoods just in the last week. So that means 22 million Americans have lost their jobs in the last four weeks. Considering we could be dealing with COVID-19 for at least the next year to 18 months, what remedies do you suggest for longer-term relief for Americans?
1: Well, I can tell you this: the unemployment insurance uh, boost that we put in the federal bill—six hundred dollars a week, uh, together with the state benefits, expanding the categories of those who are eligible—is literally a lifeline to a lot of these unemployed people. They're going to be able to pay many of them be able to pay the basic bills that they have to pay each month. <clears throat> you know, some of them are still going to be have to have to sacrifice. Uh, but we cannot expect at the end of four months to say that's the end of it. No, not another penny. We have to be prepared to extend it if necessary. If we're not up and running uh, America back in business, uh, we've got to have a safety net that is going to continue to be there for those who are struggling.
0: Are you concerned that there are people who are still falling through the cracks? There's no question
1: about it. I'm concerned with the racial disparities when it comes to health outcomes. It is just stunning and disgraceful that we're still dealing with the rate of infection and death among African-Americans Uh, which is dramatically higher than white Americans. Secondly, uh, I have to tell you, we are not talking in polite company, and I use that term uh, just metaphorically, when it comes to the undocumented in this country. By and large, they have no health insurance, no protection. It's when they're in the most desperate situation. They're taken to a hospital, and sadly, many of them are not surviving. We should realize when it comes to public health issues, the virus does not stop and ask for your papers. And if people are infected, uh, who are undocumented in this country, it's a danger to everyone. We should talk about a basic system of health care that protects everyone within our borders, or we can't deal with a public health challenge.
0: So far, we've seen higher concentrations of of spread of COVID-19 in more populated areas. What about rural communities and what they may face going forward? It's interesting.
1: I think we're up to almost maybe more now, 80 counties, where we have report out of 102 in Illinois, where we have reported cases of coronavirus. So, you know, we are a mobile society, and even with shelter-in-place suggestions and orders, people do move around, and as they move, they carry with them the viral load that they uh, took from home in the morning. So uh, that possibility it could reach rural areas is still there. But in terms of the concentration of cases, by and large in urban areas, one The suggestion last night is that that, uh, early in this uh, stage in New York City, one out of eight were actually infected based on some hospital uh, surveys. Uh, Certainly, it's nothing like that in the rural areas and downstate areas. We have to take care. If we are too quick to reopen this uh, economy, uh, we could see infection moving into areas we hadn't anticipated. Let's assume, and I think you'll hear today, that governors uh, meet with the president, And he says, well, if you have a county that hasn't shown any infections for X period of time, they can start to reopen the economy. Well, what does that mean? It means that somebody else is going to drive 10 miles from an infected county to the restaurant that just opened in the county that's supposed to be safe. And you can imagine the consequences. We've got to take care. Going through this once is bad enough. Going through it a second time is awful.
0: Well, Senator, this week, President Trump said that the power of the president to decide how and when to reopen the economy was quote unquote absolute. Let's take a listen to his comments.
1: I'm going to put it very simply. The president of the United States has the authority to do what the president has the authority to do, which is very powerful. The president of the United States calls the shots. It's a decision for the president of the United States. Now, with that being said. We're going to work with the states because it's very important. You have local government that hopefully will do a good job. And if they don't do a good job, I'd step in so fast. But no, they can't do anything without the approval of the president of the United States.
0: <laughs> now, he's since backtracked a little on those comments, but they are part of many statements over time by the president and the White House indicating a certain view of presidential power. Senator, give us your thoughts. It was a gross
1: misstatement in terms of the authority of the president. Listen, if we're dealing with war, national security and defense, as commander in chief, he has exceptional authority and should exercise it. But look at this circumstance. How many times my governor in Illinois said to me, I wish we had a national standard or plan when it came to telling people to shelter in place or closing down parts of the economy. Each of the governors stepped up and made their best decisions. Mike DeWine, a Republican of Ohio. Pritzker, Democrat of Illinois. Cuomo, Democrat uh, in New York, Hogan, Republican in Maryland, they each had to call that uh, situation as they saw it. There was maybe some federal suggestion, but there wasn't federal authority and guidance here. For the most part, they were just scrambling to do what they thought was right for their own states. Now for the president to step up and say, this is my decision as to where we go next, uh, I have to tell you, some of these governors believe they're a lot closer to the action. They ought to make the call based on their appraisal of the situation on the ground.
0: Senator, the president has also threatened to adjourn Congress in order to get some of his nominees on board. First, does he have that authority? And second, what are your thoughts on how accountable this administration is when it comes to Article 1 and and the role in approving nominees?
1: Well, I can tell you this. They are hell-bent to fill every federal vacancy with a lifetime appointee. So far, the White House has sent to the Senate Judiciary Committee, which I serve on, nine individuals who have been nominated who were found unanimously unqualified by the American Bar Association. One of them had the good uh, sense to withdraw. The other eight went through and got lifetime appointments. For this president to argue that he's sending us this blue-ribbon panel of nominees, it just isn't the case. They're just determined to give lifetime appointments to people who agree with them politically. And and you can understand, on the Democratic side, we've raised questions uh, about these nominees, and our fitness. When it comes down to it, we tried to work with this administration under extraordinary circumstances. In terms of threatening a constitutional confrontation or crisis, I can't think of a worse time to do it in Americans' history. We don't need it. We shouldn't have it. I hope it was just a throwaway line at the beginning of this press conference yesterday.
0: Well, speaking of presidential power, President Trump this week suddenly began criticizing the World Health Organization's response to COVID-19, blaming the WHO for the severity of the crisis in the U.S. He also said he's pulling U.S. funding from the WHO. What do you make of the president's comments and actions here?
1: I couldn't agree with Bill Gates more. It's as bad as it sounds to think that the United States would withdraw funds from the World Health Organization which is trying to deal with this coronavirus on a global basis is as short-sighted as anything this president could do. Uh, I can't understand why he needs to go around with his flashlight looking for enemies to fight in the middle of this coronavirus battle. Our enemy is the virus. Save these political fights for another day. Save the, the uh, backyard quarter-making for another time after we're through this crisis. Uh, I just don't think this is a fight we need, and it's going to diminish an organization we count
0: on. At the same time, uh, we're seeing reports from the Washington Post that there may have been dangerous irregularities at a Wuhan laboratory uh, that experimented in 2019 with coronavirus and bats. The Chinese government is starting to open things back up. There's reporting that things may not be as stable as we've been hearing. What's your thinking on transparency and recent actions by China?
1: I'm very suspicious. I mean, take a look at the beginning here, when the Chinese were suppressing dissent, suppressing those who spoke out about the coronavirus in its earliest stages. That doesn't tell you that they were ready to share with the world the reality and truth of what happened. Uh, And there will come a day, and I I hope it's after this crisis is long behind us, when we do this analysis and come to our conclusions. But, you know, to spend time now in a battle uh, with either the WHO or China to me is not really focusing on the main uh, responsibility we have and that is to deal with the spread of this virus to find a vaccine so that we can protect Americans from infection and to move this economy back into full gear.
0: I I want to turn to an issue a little closer to home. There was a situation this past weekend where a smokestack was imploded in Little Village on Chicago's southwest side. It's in a dust cloud throughout the neighborhood. Considering how this virus, COVID-19, attacks the respiratory system, what do you make of of that action, specifically in a marginalized and working-class community?
1: I couldn't agree with Mayor Lightfoot more. What happened in that neighborhood was an outrage. If you take a look at the video, and I've seen it, of the dust and particles that were thrown in the air as that smokestack came down, Clearly, you wouldn't want to be anywhere near that under normal circumstances. And at a time when we're facing this kind of respiratory virus, it is unthinkable that those poor people in that neighborhood were subjected to it. That is the ultimate in irresponsibility by the contractor who was involved. If there are criminal charges to be filed, count me in as as calling on the prosecutors to file them as quickly as possible.
0: Well, many see this moment as a paradigm shift in how we live, how we work, how our children learn, do you think a moment exists to rethink American life on the other side of this?
1: I think so. I think we're going through not only one of the greatest challenges in modern history in this country, but I think at the end of it, it could be transformative. You know, is there anyone now, I, I, I say this, knowing there are some who are going to disagree with me right away. But most people understand we could not move forward were it not for the uh, government at the federal, state, and local level being actively engaged in trying to protect us. It's a legitimate role of government in dealing with the American family, doing things we cannot do as individuals. Secondly, I think the notion of a safety net is changing. How many people now think it's a smart idea to go without health insurance? Not many. Not many. We realize how vulnerable we are, things that are invisible, that we can't protect ourselves. And third, I think we're starting to reevaluate essential workers in America, taking a harder look at the dignity of work. Who would have thought that that cashier, that person stocking the shelves at the grocery store would be so important in our lives? They are, and, and they're risking their lives, as are the people who are cleaning up in in the hospitals, doing the laundry, making sure that our loved ones have a chance to survive. Same thing true when it comes to nursing homes. The people who are working there, these are real American heroes. I think we'll have a reevaluation and after this is behind us uh, as to the importance and value of certain things that we might have taken for
0: granted before. That's Democrat Dick Durbin, senior U.S. senator from Illinois. Senator, thanks for speaking with us and stay safe.
1: Good to be with you. Thanks.
0: And that's today's Reset. Thanks for making Reset a part of your day. You can find the most up-to-date information on the COVID-19 crisis by tuning to 915 WBEZ or by going to wbez.org. I'm Jen White. Stay safe, stay inside, and let's talk again soon.